Welcome to New Books and Food Studies. I'm your host, Jeremy Wood. And today I had the honor to speak with Michael Twitty, author of The Cooking Gene, A Journey Through African-American Culinary History in the Old South. Michael is the creator of Afroculinaria, a blog devoted to African-American historic foodways. It's been honored by FirstWeFeast.com as one of the 20 greatest food blogs of all time, and Michael's been named one of the 50 people changing the South by Southern Living. His work here continues that labor of changing the South by centering African-American peoples and cultures at the very root of Southern food history. In our conversation, we discussed the tremendous regionalism of Southern Black food cultures, their syncretic interactions with diverse indigenous peoples, their creative use of diverse ecosystems, and their origin in the kitchens of West and Central Africa. We talked about the role of religion, the politics of culinary justice, and the questions of identity that make food such a profound and dynamic part of all of our American histories. Without further ado, Michael Twitty. All right, Michael, thank you for the opportunity to to read what is really um, was an incredible work um, and for joining us in the New Books Network. Thank you. So I'll start, as is our tradition, by asking for a little bit of biography. And so much of your book is is memoir, but we'll get more into that. Um, But first, let me just ask you, how did you come to be a historian or scholar or interpreter or however you understand it um of of african-american culinary history and particularly how did you come to write this book so uh the simplest answer i can give because i'm known for being long-winded <laughs> is um you know i remember writing a a, a paper in high school that was 16 pages long uh, 16, 20 pages long about African-American, the roots of soul food. And I also wrote a a paper in the eighth grade about the African part of Brazilian foodways before I even know what foodways meant or even used the word foodways. Um, we had to do a research paper in English and we had to do a paper for our African-American history class. We did have one in high school, uh, which was great. Um, my best teacher is Mr. McMillan. Um, but technically I've been writing <laughs> black culinary history stuff since, you know, uh, eighth, seventh or eighth grade high school. And, um, I just really found culinary history, you know, food history as a really powerful means into the lives of our ancestors. Because we are so remote from them, all of us, no matter what background you come from, you don't you don't know what life was like for your great 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 grandfather, or there was more than one of them. Which one do you want? Because the further back you go, the more you get. It becomes infinitesimal and difficult. And but if we know where they were. And we know what the average person's life was like and what food they ate. And some of those foods are the things that we continue to eat. Then in some way we are viscerally connected to our ancestors 
and we can tell a lot about them because we know a lot about ourselves. You, you feel me? Yeah. So yeah. that was really a big part of it. And then, um, I guess, 2011, I had this idea to do this Indiegogo campaign to do the Southern Discomfort Tour. Um, got the money, won our, won our, our crowdfunding you know, bid. We did, we did well. But I still did not have a book in mind, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I was trying to actually push a book on the foodways of African Virginians because I'd already done one on Afro-Marylanders self-published. Um, but I found it very hard to sell that, not because it wasn't an interest or because people didn't want the information. Uh, it's because that's this, this not a you know popular nonfiction market for niche books on culinary history, hmm. um, which is very painful. Because like I said, just said, people want the information. They take that information and they use it for exhibitions and programs, and it's valuable. But you wouldn't guess it, <laughs> you know, the way it gets brokered out. Sure. So I was very depressed. I wanted to do um, big things. I had done this big tour. I got a little more, more press for it than I had anything else I had ever done. And then next thing I know, Paula Dean. <laughs> is called to terms, you know. We, mm-hmm. I want to answer the question for you, um, but she was called to term for her uh, use of the N word and her racist business practices, among other things. And uh, I wrote a letter, to, open letter to her, on my blog, basically saying, "Hey, you know, you can change this, but this isn't just about you. This is about the way the whole culinary field." deals with race and color and phenotype and heritage. And uh, we can do, we can work on making the, a better South and a better Southern food base together. Well, people like that message. Um, it went viral very quickly. I mean, that afternoon, I remember the power went off and for 20 minutes, I had no clue what was going on in the world. It was, I was in the, li- I was in the public library and all of a sudden, bam, the power comes back on. My phone has a billion messages <laughs> it's like okay, and I and I and I got twelve literary agents interested in my work overnight. <laughs> That's awesome. And uh, yeah, after after crying and begging God for an agent or something, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden it happened. I, or, I and I used to teach. I mean, I'm not. It's not a really. It's not a big deal to me. I'm Jewish. That's a fact. I taught Hebrew school for fourteen years. Um, on my twelfth year, I had taught at one particular school for ten years solid, one decade. And I quit. Not quit, but I res- kind of I retired because I, you know, um, I wanted to do other things. And I was getting I was getting used to this like traveling around and eating good life. And uh, I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. You know, I didn't know if I wasn't going to go back to the Hebrew school classroom in the fall and teach and try to do that and juggle. I didn't know what I was going to do, so I just was out on a limb. So you know that old cliche about closing a door and opening a window or whatever it is? Mm-hmm. That, that's exactly what happened to me. And um, it worked. So that's how the, that's how the book was, was born. Um, I wanted to write about my family. I wanted to write about African-American foodways. I wanted to write about uh, the complexities of my identity, black, gay, Jewish, Southern, whatever else you want to call me. 
um, human. And I wanted to write about um, my fascination with genetic genealogy, with um, the cultural links between Africa and America. I want to do all of it. So for me, this gave me an opportunity to really sort of pursue those passions in one project and get the word out. It's a great summary of, of the things that we can, uh, we can unpack. I have too many notes that I just wrote down. Yeah, why don't, why don't we, we go back a little bit? I, I, I want to really get into to that concept of roots, both in terms of history and in terms of like geography, that you're saying that the tour that kind of shaped some of this and sort of the niche of looking particularly at Virginia, particularly at Maryland. But before we do that, um, looking at, at the, the concept of the book, could you, speak, you, you mentioned the episode with Paula Dean. Could you speak a little bit more about the, maybe the subtler ways or the more insidious ways that the politics of of Southern food have functioned and the way in which white interpreters past and present have kind of claimed um, the the history of of black folks and black culinary history uh, for oh, their absolutely. own. Absolutely, I think I think the problem is is that the emphasis on the the emphasis on the individuals interpreting this has gone to white folks. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it, people need to understand something. Racism and issues around it are not one tone. They take on many tones. There is not one anti-Semitism. There are a rainbow of anti-Semitism. Yeah. There's not one homophobia. There's a rainbow of homophobia. No, I, I may I mean that with every single pun intended. It, there is not one racism. Yeah. Okay. There's not one bigotry, and and we have to be real about this. There are subtle. I like the way you said that. There are subtle and insidious, quiet forms of racial power politics. Mm-hmm. Um. You know. Look. And and the problem is that when you are oppressed, when you're marginalized, you are co-opted into your own demise. Hmm. You know, right now we have conservative, some conservative folk. I don't, I don't, I don't dislike conservative folk. I just wish they had, you know, kind of thought some things through. If you're asking me to choose between Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter as a black man, then you're also asking me to buy into a corporate political idea that I, as a black man, when I look at myself in the mirror, am an inherently dangerous beast that needs to be shot first and asked ask questions of later. What kind of fool do I look like to, to, to sign on to that? In the same way, you know, we kind of signed on to the, de- to the, to the demise of our control and ownership of, you know, African-American vernacular food ways our imprint on Southern food ways and soul food. Okay. Mm-hmm. So during civil rights, we, we had a hard look at ourselves and said, we aren't professionals like that. We want to be, we're being held back because, you know, we, 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 there's not enough of us doing who are doctors, who are lawyers, who are in business. Um, we would do that, right? We would, we would aim high and only some of, only some of us got to stay there. We were always about achievement. Don't let anybody fool you about the black community. We've always been about achievement. 
But after civil rights and the, the advent of affirmative action, we had we looked at ourselves and said, well, maybe we don't want to do certain jobs anymore. But those jobs had been held almost by a hereditary lot of black men and women who were domestics or cooks, um, rarely called chefs, but they were chefs. Mm-hmm. And then when we shifted into other things, we didn't want to we didn't want to serve white folks no more. And we weren't just doing something. We were doing French food. Jacques Pepin, Pierre Frenet, both praised the black cooks in French restaurants in America. And they were and they were endemic in the same way that Latino cooks are endemic now. The difference being is that it wasn't it, 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 it was considered part of our inherent nature. We were considered like, like this nat. You know, it's kind of, it is racist. <laughs> it is kind of like prejudice. To say, okay, these people are just naturally, instinctually, because you're not, you're not working with the brain, right? You're working mm-hmm. with the body. Yeah. But still, they called us the greatest cooks. And then we gave it up because it was subservient. It looked, it looked beneath us. At the same time, you have a greater, you know, the, the cooking and the chefing becomes a, a, a white collar, and its own kind of almost like white collar profession. Mm-hmm. You know, and folks have to have a degree. You know, they go into Culinary Institute of America. They're going to other places. You know, that James Beard thing has come full circle. Mm-hmm. People, people aren't just falling into the kitchen. It's an actual studied, degreed, gastronomic endeavor. Well, those old black men and old black women had been in the kitchen for years. They didn't have no degrees. All they had was, you know, training and motherwit. Um, and they, they knew how to do stuff. They learned. They had, they had a good taste for things. Um... So then the black chefs that are left are trying to do everything else but soul food because they don't want to get pegged. They're hmm. put in a bubble. And so then we're kind of like it's kind of it's kind of like we're giving away. So then we we look up one day and there's a Paul Prudhomme. And no people I have not some 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 jerk said to me said online that I was accusing Paul Prudhomme of a of a, of a um, appropriation. No, I'm saying that Paul Bernholm probably had a black grandma because you look at his face and see it. <laughs> but um, I know them Louisiana white folks, they all kind of mixed up. Um, but Paul Bernholm and, and Justin Wilson, the, the comedian, and then later there was, you know, Natalie Dupree, who's a good friend of mine. And then there was Tyler Florence and Paula Dean and all these other people on television and the media representing Southern food. And they're all white. And, and yeah, they may have talked about black people or the reference to black people on occasion. Certainly Nellie Dupree did, you know, um, very often on her show, interviewed Edna Lewis. But um, we were kind of in the background. We weren't really there. We did have, um, I'm, what am I blanking on his name right now? Um, one of our best chefs was in New York. Forget what his name is. He used to be in Tavern in the Green. And uh, uh, Julia Child had him on her show. He was extraordinary. Um, I can't think of his name, and I, I'm, I'm hurting. My brain's hurting because of that. But um, he was fantastic, and we'd had those people. But you know, they wasn't necessarily known for being the Southern cook or African American vernacular mm-hmm. cook, and it didn't have to be. I mean, you get what I'm saying? We had uh, Elijah Muhammad tell people in his Eat to Live book, and Elijah Muhammad, you know, for all of his very deep faults really was trying to get African-Americans to be a self-sufficient nationalistic people who did it for themselves. And he was concerned about our health 
and he was wise to be. But he also said that collard greens, sweet potatoes, and black-eyed peas were slave food. But we all know that leafy greens, roots and tubers, and black-eyed peas are actually foods with very deep roots in the African diaspora and African tradition. Yeah. And all of them are healthy for you. Every single one. Um, it's how you prepare them that counts. You know, how you, how you treat them. But that was that attitude as well. People didn't want to – didn't, soul food was a, a maligned thing. Um, and the reason why, Jeremy, why I say soul food and don't shy away from that is because I believe that soul food actually gives us – because we coined the term, and I, and I always said to people, soul food is not slave food. But slave food – you can't tell the story of soul food without telling the story of slave food. Mm-hmm. And that soul food is the memory cuisine of the great-grandchildren of enslaved people. So looking back, and there's something wrong with that. We call that Sankofa, okay? In the Akan tree language, Sankofa, you're looking back to fetch something from the past that's necessary to survive into the future. So I have no problem with that. Second of all, when we say soul food, we're talking about something that's transcendent. Something that is spiritual, something that is ethereal, something that is that you cannot cannot put into a formula called a recipe. Mm-hmm. It's something that you feel, that you know, that comes from your blood and your bone and your spirit, your ancestors. Um, and that's why I like it. I don't. I'm not ashamed of that term. I don't think it's stupid. I don't think it's political. I think it's very much um, our way of being ethnic. And of course, you know this this work. It really is not about black racializing black folks. It's about f you know I don't know what's a good word Jeremy I don't even know. It's about making us more into an seen as an ethnic people. Sure, as an ethnic block, and I think when people see us that way, understand our history that way, they can leave their they can leave their baggage at home because then it becomes a very different narrative. But to really get to the meat of your question, here's what I gotta say. When these white figureheads and white voices kind of took to the fore about Southern food and Southern culture and Southern music and everything else, some folks were studying us and upselling us, but they weren't really working with us as a community. Southern communities, more and more divided, more and more, you know, new ways to segregate, new ways to disenfranchise, new ways to subjugate, Hmm. new ways to impoverish, new ways to kill us. And yet, people aren't talking to each other. Now they are. Some of, sometimes because I have pushed people's buttons and said, you know what? I don't, I don't care if you know a lot of stuff about us. Do you really know us? Do you work with us? Hmm. Do you care about us? Do you understand that kids are, kids are hungry? Kids are eating the wrong thing. Do you understand that they don't know the history? And it's not just your job to just learn about the history and pontificate about it, but to share it. And to be, be in community with each other. You know, I had, a, I had a nice long talk with Sean Brock, and I just was texting with him earlier. Well, we didn't have that talk before, you know, buttons got pushed in his direction. You know, in terms of, you know, I was, I was furious, man. Food and Wine magazine and some other site calling him, you know, you know basically using the Columbusing thing, saying he was discovering the African roots of Southern food. Yeah. And, I, and he said, you know, yeah, I didn't like that either. And I said, well, I wish I would have heard it from you a little bit louder, you know, if you didn't like it. And I said, I, I, was, I told him, I said, Sean, I said, that's not even the worst part. The worst part is when, you know, white food writers ask you, 
I mean, me, me, you know, how can you, what can you tell us that Sean Brock already hasn't? And I'm like, excuse me? I'm the wow. black one. I'm the one whose ancestors came over here on slave ships. I'm the one who's dedicated his entire life to this. Sean, you know, Sean, ha- Sean had to go to Africa. Sean had to understand his African roots to be a proper Southern chef, especially when he represents the low country. Mm-hmm. No doubt about that. But you know something? What's even, what's even more important? That 40 million plus African Americans understand their heritage, where they come from, and can use that knowledge to better their lives. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, I, and I'm just struck by the way in which when that story is, is claimed by, by white folks, there's less attention on, on what you're talking about, about being about black communities being in community with each other and communities across lines of, of heritage being in community with each other. Um, right. I'm just, I'm thinking about how, I mean, what, what you had said about what Elijah Muhammad said contrasted with you talking about folks in the nation who came to farmers markets that were very oriented towards um, reclaiming and, 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 and fostering um, those same food cultures that the nation had earlier um, pushed aside. Um, but if I can, if I can lock down on, on, on the idea of Sankofa that you were talking about and, and trace that, that soul back, um, part of what I loved about, I mean, one of the big things I loved about your book is kind of what you were saying of like reclaiming ethnicity, reclaiming the diversity of heritage, um, and looking at the, the deep influence that the various communities and various ethnic histories of different peoples in, in Africa who were, were kidnapped and brought over had on Southern food. Can you talk a little bit about that diversity? Oh yeah. Um, first of all, um, I'm kind of piggybacking on, I don't know if it was Peter Wood or another historian who said that the average, um, white person living back in slavery days when boats coming in from Africa knew more about Africa than, (laughs) Americans of most backgrounds of today. And part of it was because, you know, capitalism with a big C, they were making purchases of people based on scant knowledge of where they were from and what they were about. Sometimes they assign them sort of like erroneous, um, you know, qualities. So, for example, my Igbo ancestors from southeastern Nigeria were uh, considered depressed, melancholy. Because they didn't, I mean, their response to the exile of slavery was to shut down emotionally. Mm-hmm. Whereas other groups, like my Khan ancestors, their response was to fight back. To, you know, start killing folks. <laughs> but they were strong. They, looked, they said, oh my god, these people are so strong and beautiful and tall, but they're going to kill us. So which one do we want? Do we want to get, get killed? Or do we want to, like, get, get, our, get our tobacco picked? You know, that kind of stuff. Um, there were folks from Congo who grinned as they were whipped. And there were folks from, from Senegambia who sat silent as they were whipped. I mean, that's really, that's really what it comes down to. And then, it, then it's also Sierra Leone, you're going to grow some rice. Mm-hmm. Senegal, you might be growing cotton and tobacco. Ghana, you might grow some corn. Um, 
Congo folks were introduced to a number of different elements of European cultures of the Portuguese. And they're the first, Congo Angolans are the first ones to come over. Um, and what amazes me, Jeremy, is that I spent, I don't know, 30 years studying all this. Yeah, since I'm a kid, right? Mm -hmm. Reading big books. Yeah. But what got me in processing the research for this book was all of those people are in my body. And I can and I can show you how they're in my body. And they're in my 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 soul and my my heritage, as well as the European roots and and and, and non-African and non-European roots that are part of me. And they've always been talking to me, bringing me back, feelings, you know, mm. emotions, intu intuitive, intuitive moments. Um, yeah. And that's very powerful for me because I don't think a lot of people think about it that way. I, I'm not bothered by the fact that history does sort of like jerk us around. You know, we, we like to believe that we're so damn individualistic, right? That all the keys are in our hands. Hmm. That's not true. Some of them are. Absolutely. Some of what Jeremy has become and what Michael has become is completely within our daily choices and our how we manage our emotions and our feelings and our thoughts, how we were raised, what circumstances we were born in, you know, all that stuff. And how we and how we can overcome or work with, with our, our our the legacy of our parents. But a large to a large degree, a lot of that is set by our history. Immigration and migration patterns, you know, um, choices made by previous generations and the way our DNA has, has reacted to the traumas and issues that our ancestors faced and that we face. So we don't like to think of, we don't, a lot of people don't like history because history makes them feel like a marionette. Sure. <laughs> it, you know, it yeah. lifts your arms and your legs. And against your will, and you say, "Damn it, I didn't ask for this," and that's why I like that's why I like studying history so that I can sort of like push back and fight back and do my own dance, and not just be pulled along by the strings of history. So for me, knowing these ancestors and knowing what they contributed to not only the the, the development of American civilization, um, to give your to give your listeners some some context, you know, when you hear a banjo. You're looking at an instrument that has roots all over West Africa, but particularly Senegambia, where stringed instruments, um, particularly those that were in concert between Africa and the Arab world, and in um, Central, Central Africa, where they had mbanza, which is a stringed instrument. Mbanza becomes banjo. Okay? So you have a heritage of people plucking these string instruments while they're telling a story set to set to musical, you know, a musical tune. And if you think about the blues, the bluesman with his guitar, if you think about the black banjo player before the minstrel show took his culture and made it into a joke, you know, and was yeah. made into a joke because white folks had to become white. It was a way of saying, see, we're not like these monkeys. We're not, they're funny, aren't they? With their, with their ugly faces and their primitive culture. And the banjo went from being this glorious, you know, equalizer. 
when black folks played the banjo, whites and blacks came from miles around to hear that noise. And it brought them together because it was a sound like no other. And when they played that string fiddle made on a gourd, grown in their gardens, and played that rattle and that drum, and the music of Europe, Africa, and Native America was fused and became the root of jazz, rock and roll, everything else that came from that, that started those plantations. Nobody said that was awful. In fact, it was this, the soundtrack of the only peaceful part of life that, that white and black Southerners knew. Hmm. But then it was taken away from us and turned into a joke, a racist joke, and, be, and, and belittled us. And same thing happened with the food, right? Because during slavery time, we were the glory of the Southern kitchen. You know, um, West African, kinke and fufu, you know, translate well into grits and harmony, which is native, right? Yeah. But then we take it and we do African things with it. We take European ingredients and Africanize them. We take Native American ingredients and Africanize them. We take African ingredients and Native American and Europeanize them. You know, mm-hmm. we, it's, it's, sort, it's sort of like whatever combination you want, whatever probability you, you can imagine, it probably happened at least once, if not more than once. And that's the magic of it. And that's what I try to express in this book is that, you know, it's not one people at one time. It's many people with many backgrounds sort of colliding into each other that makes the food and makes a civilization that we take for granted. Yeah. No. And, and the diversity of those peoples, um, whether peoples from Africa, native peoples, peoples that arose in the South, like the, the Gula culture, uh, Creole mm-hmm. folks for the further South, um, that diversity comes through very strongly. Um, let me ask you, so you said that whatever you could imagine happened happened at least once, happened at least somewhere, and all these different exchanges that you're talking about um, do lead to, to different recipes in different places, um, and part of that is where folks came from, um, but can you talk also to, to how... Um, the different indigenous cultures that they, they interacted with shaped that, the different economies that they interacted with, the different ecosystems that they interacted with. Um, sure, I'll give you a couple examples. Um, here's the first part that people should know. Um, you know, I talk about, I am I, very dedicated to making sure people know the native impact, but it wasn't, it wasn't a, um, it wasn't, you know, static, dynamic. It wasn't just like a one-time thing. It was like, here, here's some corn, beans, and squash. Okay, go to it. Yeah. It was actually war, enslavement, um, sexual congress, trade, um, all of the above. Natives get enslaved. It's the, the, in the lower south, the trade in, 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 in Indian slaves outnumbered the trade in African slaves until there, was, there were no more natives to take. And then it shifts. Um, in the Upper South, Native people are used to sort of like, they don't want Natives and Africans cooperating because if they do, what's going to happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? So there's back. that. And then, it, right. And in the Lower South, where it's like subtropical and it's like mosquito heavy and, 
you know, white folks are scared to get yellow fever and malaria. Natives and Africans work together to fight the plantation system. Mm-hmm. So that means food's going to happen. I never forget reading this book when I was growing up about Native Americans. And it talked about the Seminoles and it just barely mentioned black people. And then it talked about what the Seminoles grew and how they subsisted. And it was like, yeah, the Seminoles grew rice and sweet potatoes and black eyed peas and bananas and sugar cane. And I'm like, hold up. So you mean tell me they were yeah. eating black they was eating banana pie, custard pie, <laughs> and some sweet potatoes. You know, they of course they weren't. But it was in my head, I went, wait a minute. This doesn't sound like corn, beans, and squash. This is yeah. something totally different. And so then I re- did the, you know, I read a beautiful book called Black Indians by William Loring Katz, a forgotten people, forgotten legacy, whatever the book was called. And it scared the hell out of people because it's basically telling us the history of how thousands upon thousands of black folks had run away to Native American groups and became part of the, became part of the tribe. Whereas in other societies, there were hundreds of enslaved Africans among the Cherokee and the Creek and the Choctaw. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you were allowed in, sometimes you were enslaved. It really just it was colloquial and discretionary. But there was a, there was a lot of exchange of food um, and cultures, and obviously people were having a discussion about those things. Um, so yeah, that's that's that part of things. What was the second part of your question you asked me? Uh, yeah, yeah. So in addition to the different indigenous cultures there, um, how did the the economic, uh, the different economic models and different plantation models of slavery, um, as well as the different uh, ecosystems of different regions um, translate in, into, into food culture? Um, okay. And leave so, their marks know, on that. One so. of the, right. Each one of them had a different sort of like thing going on. Um, the point I try to make in the book is, is that, um, you know, we were, huh, how do I put this? We were um, in better straits when we first arrived for the next two, three generations. And then things, something very negative happens to us. So when you're brought, so when you're in a tobacco farm or rice plantation, one is in like the oak hickory forest in the pine, and the other one is in like the subtropical swamps. Both have their challenges. Winter is the biggest challenge if you live in the upper self. And malaria, yellow fever, smallpox is your challenge in the lower self. But they make it work. Some people die. Some people live and get stronger, pass on those strong genes of survival. Mm-hmm. And um, they make a life. They use their knowledge base from West Africa to look for botanical cognates. And I write about this in the book. And they look for animals that are very similar. And they, 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 you know, their contact with Native people and with Europeans refines their response to the environment. So now we have this diverse food cache, right? You know, how many different kind of fish can you catch in the low country, right? And the, uh, up the rivers, on the coast. Same thing with Virginia and Maryland, and the bay versus the, you know, the, you know, the tributaries. And then those crops, you know, with tobacco was always corn and wheat. Corn, wheat, and tobacco were the, three, were the, you know, the, the tripartite co- crops growing in the Chesapeake. 
So that was that. So those are going to be part of your diet as well. Then your truck patch, where in the Chesapeake, mm-hmm. you know, you did gang labor, which meant that everybody got to work together. Then you get to go home as a group to the quarter after a 12 to 16 hour day. In the low country task system, you do a little bit of work. However long it takes you to do a task, some people it's quick. Most people took, you know, it was a five or six hour day. Some people took 12 hours. Mm-hmm. But when you were done with your task and the driver said you were done, you could go and tend to fishing, hunting, gathering, farming for yourself. And so obviously some of the most experienced people in the community, it became very important to get that task done quickly so that you can go move on and do your own stuff. So you can see how that affected, and it also affected the economy because there's an underground economy of, uh, underground and overground economy of black fishermen and farmers and hunters. Um, sometimes they're providing food to their slaveholders. Sometimes they're providing food to passersby. Sometimes at markets, sometimes underground. And then comes the cotton kingdom where slavery is now industrial. Resources are not the same. Even if you're living in the middle of Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, it quite frankly is not the same botanical and biological diversity that you're getting on the coast. Mm -hmm. So your diet changes. So it's all over the place. It's all over the place. Um, And what happens is the diet also shrinks. So, you know, these crops that can be grown with very little human interaction, very easy, um, high calories, and more of an emphasis on corn that's not nixtamalized, it's not treated, yeah. you know, and then that, that's unhealthy because corn, because that kind of corn is an is a, um, empty carbohydrate versus being a complete nutritious food. And so, the, you know, you see these, these numbers of enslaved people who are now blind or going blind, who have ailments that can't be healed. You see, you know what's, you know what's happening, right? That they didn't know. Diabetes. Wow, sure. We go, for, we go from being a people who are getting taller and healthier, who are seasoned to different climates and things in a new world, to a diabetic, hypertensive, um, chronically ill people because of the greed that it took to make cotton the king of America. Two-thirds of our exports, cotton. Cotton, the reason why reconstruction was cut short. Cotton, the reason why a human being was on the market sold every three minutes during the 20 years before the Civil War. Cotton, the reason why black families were separated and black men were displaced by rapists in the slave cabins of the South. Cotton, the reason why we were cut off from our African names, our religion, our origins, and could not um, engage in African culture openly. Cotton, the reason why a new set of rules was developed to control uh, black religion and also control black education. So all the things that people complain about today, why don't black folks get it together? Well, <laughs> we were supposed to be ignorant, div- you know, ignorant, um, health compromised people with no with no fathers, no marriage, no family structure, no God no connection to Africa, in perpetuity. I was never meant to talk to you on this podcast. 
ever. I was supposed I'm supposed to be in a field right now, picking picking cotton. But you know what? Um, good has a way of working its way out of things, and thank God that um, their way did not prevail. But that was their plan, perpetuity. It wasn't, and that's and that's not necessarily a, you know it's not a conspiracy. It's just a fact. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that the I'm sure that in medieval Europe the lords of the manor thought the same thing, right? Will always be lords of the manor, and there will always be serfs. Yeah, it's like, it's like <laughs> in a thousand year Reich mentality. Mm-hmm. And one that's been perpetuated in different ways, like you said, killing, reconstruction, and everything that followed. Um, I want to I want to get back to in a second to kind of yeah this juxtaposition between the cruelty of of these these monocrops, like specifically cotton, and compared to the richness of of um the richness that almost seemed to be an expression of of cultural resistance in maintaining like this breadth of of fishing of gardening of hunting practice and what that continues to mean today but before before we get to that just sticking staying uh, one more moment with cotton so there's there's so many moments in your book um in your own experience um as a historical interpreter and there's so much to to look at there but specifically with cotton you talk about your experience going down and picking cotton um can you talk a little bit about what that was like physically emotionally spiritually for you um it was extremely oh god it was how do i put this it 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 was the most cathartic thing i've ever done almost cathartic thing i've ever done because you know people joke about this shit a lot oh picking cotton ha 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 you know, first thing you got to do is you got to be dedicated to keeping your back bent. There's something there's something really demeaning about that. You know, it, it is it is a life of being bowed, of being broken, because if you snap up all the time for picking cotton, your back starts to really kill you, and you can only see the the white lint of the of the bowls. And so that's why I dedicate a lot of time in this book to actually talking about what my own personal experience was like picking, you know, picking cotton or working tobacco or being in a rice field, you know, or seeing cane for the first time. Because I don't think people have have any idea. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people don't know that corn, corn leaves and tasseling corn and all that other stuff that you have to do. That's sharp. It's hard. It's prickly. It's nasty. It's it's sweaty. There's snakes in the field. There's bugs and there's spiders and there's like all kinds of icky stuff and you know some people may just be like haha that's nothing but i mean think about doing this for 30 years or so until your body can no longer function you're not healthy just worn out you're nothing and the fact that your body is your source of your value you know when you can actually look at as i did and i put the i just put some of the prices in the book, right? When I talk about the prices of my ancestors, to learn how much they cost, what their value was to the system, was remarkable. Because if I didn't have that, I wouldn't have other details about them. In other words, they had to be commodities. And so part of the commodification of their bodies was that feeling of being in that field that I got to feel for, you know, 
don't know, 12, 16 hours, whatever it was. Um, but then I had to remind myself, no matter how tough this is to you, your life is so much easier than one second in their life. You're, you're, seven, you're 16 hours picking cotton. That little experiment is, does not equal one second in the life of your enslaved ancestors. So I, I, feel, I felt this immediate kinship with them, and it broke me. Jeremy, it broke me hard. It made me uh, break down. I mean, I broke down at the cotton field. I thought I understood. I didn't understand. I did not know the debt that were paid so that I could write a book. So that I learned my lesson. And I hope and I wish that everybody did that. You know, there's a lot of white Southerners who owe their existence to a white chair crop in a cotton field. I wish them the same experience. To really understand how all of us really owe our ancestors who got on a boat or who survived a war. They did this for us. They really did. And when you understand that it wasn't just about them, your whole life changes. Thank you for that. Um, So as, like you said, um, the people who never had an opportunity to to go home, who were commodified, who were Mm -hmm. broken down daily, forced to bow, like you said, um, the ways in which they they kept themselves alive, that they kept each other alive in body and soul. Like you were saying before, folks would fish, would, would grow a diversity of crops, including crops from Africa or the cognates that they found here in a way to find a, a, any, any sense of home in, in forced exile. Um, can you talk a little bit about, um, that other that other side of cultivation, the the, the gardens um, that that kept people going, um, the gardening that that of edible antiques that you've done, what that's meant to you, and also generally what how farming justice throughout Black history until until the present um, has played a role in in restoring soul and and healing folks' bodies and communities. Sure. Um, one of the things that I did not want to do was write a book that was solely anchored in the past. Um, I wanted to write something that spoke to the modern resistance. That word's got a lot of play recently. But for us, resistance has been a key part of how we've reinterpreted our history for the past 20, 30 years. And it's an ongoing process. It's not, it didn't just die off. It's still going. So I like the fact that there were black farmers who were doing a thing. My friend Matthew Rayford, or nutritionists like Tambor Ray uh, Stevenson, and um, Denzel Mitchell, and Jenga Window. Um, black men and women who are really shaping. The Tomorrow, Velma Jacobs, hmm. um, all these folks who are just kind of trying to trying to do their best to change the world using little little plots of land, the Habesha in Atlanta. 
um, all these folks just changed. And it really got to me because I would go visit these folks and, uh, in, in Athens, Georgia, and Atlanta, and Montgomery, and Baltimore, and just be like, okay, something's happening here. Something good is happening here. And it's amazing because those gardens during slavery were used to diversify a diet that unfortunately was very um, – it wasn't a good diet. We already talked about that. Yeah. But it, it wasn't just – it wasn't a good diet. It wasn't a diet in which you had real agency. Agency and ownership came to those gardens. And those gardens were a tool of resistance just because you could plant things in the gardens that came from Africa that maintained African taste. So it was one of the few ways we were openly allowed or could openly take advantage of preserving our culture right in front of people's faces. And of course, you know, white folks eating the same food up in the big house and their tastes are being Africanized, as we talked about before. So it's, a, it, it, you know, I got to be healthy if I'm going to run, if I'm going to fight back. And today, the same deal. Mm-hmm. I need to be in touch with the land. I need to fight back. I got to be healthy to do that. I got to understand how to, how to best manage my body. I got to understand um, why my people did the things they did. What can these seeds teach me about my history? How can passing them on give my children a legacy? And that's why I went and interviewed my friends and colleagues who I know have been doing this work for years. Because it made me so proud to know that the the best parts of our of our system of survival have not been lost, but are still going on today. And by kind of re- reclaiming the story and owning that source code of how we do this, it it really provide opportunities, economic opportunities, for young you know young black folks. More young black folks are going to these farms and these projects on. Um, you know, food justice. Whereas 10 years ago, everybody was like, I ain't no damn slave. I won't dig in the dirt. That's not for me. And it wasn't just the kids. It was the elders too. The elders from the great migration who were just like, nah, I was born up here. I was born in the city. Why do I want to go do that? My parents fought hard to get away from that. And now people are just like realizing that that is, we're like Antaeus. You take, you know, in Greek mythology, you took him from the earth, he died. He lost his power. Put us back on the earth. We get all we need. Um, and, you know, if you can feed yourself, you can free yourself. Late in the book, you talk about um, trips that you took to, to London, to Liverpool. Um, trips that in some ways were, were also paralleling um, your mother's story, who, who lived over there, and also served to, to place your book um, within within the history of the Black Atlantic. I mean, you were talking about white folks in the South being Africanized in their, in their cuisine, and the same is true across the pond as well. Could you talk a little bit about um, those trips and how, how Black culture and Black history, whether coming from Africa, developing within the United States, had an effect back, uh, back in Europe? Sure. Um, well, here's the, here's the first part. I wish I had written more. I wish I had thought about this, but writing more about, you know, sort of like that whole Renaissance connection, which I saw, um, studied and also saw in a museum um, not that long ago, and it was remarkable. Black 
black European history is ancient stuff. Yeah. And it's and it's exquisite because some of the some of the narratives that we're so familiar with are not really there. You know, we're these exotic people who are kind of really admired for our for you know our values. It's it's like all the things that kind of disappear in the commodification of black folks are sort of, you know, there. Oh, they're so smart and they're so pretty and they're so exotic and they're so brown and they're so dark and they're so this and they're so that. And look look how beautiful they look when they wear jewelry and they're so spiritual and they're so kind and so virtuous. And then oh they can work. Hmm. Work really hard for us. Aren't they so they're so heathen? Then sort of they're so raven, they're so heathen. Um and some other things go on. I mean, the exact reverse. Yeah. All those positive acts have become negative. So let's fast forward to when the commodification of black bodies becomes the root. One thing I didn't get to put in the book, and I wish I had, because I didn't know I was going to have all this time, this, this you know, time to really get some things together. I thought it was a done deal by the time I got to England. When I went on this next trip to England, Third, my third trip. I gotta tell you something. Look, man. I was down the London Docklands, and I was at the West India Key, and I looked up, and I saw HSBC, and Barclays, and Sotheby's. Hmm. And Lloyd's of London, and all these other like you know firms and money changers, and I just thought to myself, "Oh my God, oh my God, here it is. This all this business district, all this money, is in the exact same place where the bodies and the sugar came in. It's still here. It is. There's no doubt. This is built on the system." In Liverpool, which is much more quieter, I write about Liverpool in the book, and what I see about Liverpool is that you would never guess that the people of Liverpool came from the European city with the most to lose in the loss of the slave trade. Hmm. And it's not the same feeling. You know, you go, you go to certain parts of the Deep South, and there are people who don't want to be bothered with you. Because you're, you're, you know, whatever word they want to call you. And it's very quiet. And it's very subtle. But when you get a hold of them, some of them, they're no joke. And Jeremy, they'll tell you to your face. I don't like you. I don't think I'm the equal. You're equal to me. Hmm. And quite frankly, um, I wish we could ship you back. Um, and that's what we expect. That's a, that's one minuscule person. We don't have a, we don't have a lot of people in American society, despite this current drama we're living in, who will really say that out loud. Especially in the South, there was a there is a code of public inability to talk about race. Okay, and it works for blacks and whites. Most white Southerners aren't on that level anymore. But I do feel that most white Americans do function at some level of not really understanding fully their location and their relationship to the history of race. 
and racism as, as a power system. Um, I'm saying that to say that an African-American person who's, who's uninitiated might come to the Deep South and expect the sort of the more blatant racism, the more blatant insults, and they may not get them. And they may come across someone who, who they can intuit or tells them they don't like them. And then there's that obvious history of slavery and segregation, Jim Crow. Well, Liverpool had riots, you know, during the Sus Laws, which are basically the British version of Stop and Frisk. Hmm. And Britain had, you know, London, Liverpool, and Bristol were built on the slave trade. And there were black people living in those towns and those cities during the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries who were enslaved and who were later, and who, or people who were um, from the Caribbean, Africa. And they were African, African and Caribbean immigrants coming to these cities, making them diverse during a time when Britain was saying, keep Britain white. And yet I didn't feel the same sense of, I don't trust you. Hmm. Um, because they were saying to me, hey, we did this. We take responsibility. We don't want this to happen again. We think it's improper that, you know, people, black folks in Liverpool were chased out of school because of racist classmates. We think it's awful that Bobbies were clocking um, black Jamaicans, um, or excuse me, black Britons of Jamaican heritage who were born in England on the head because they didn't trust to like black men. We think it's wrong that we made all this money off of black folks in the sugarcane fields. Um, and there was a little bit of acknowledgement about America, but not much. And this is what I, the point I'd really like to make right here and now. Somebody's got to own us. Somebody's got to own this. You know, one time I was in a museum in uh, Memphis, the museum where Dr. King was shot. And, a, and an older white man, you know, Riley said to a young black docent, he said, you know, we don't really, we're not really responsible for the first, you know, whatever years of slavery. Hmm. We're only responsible for like 1789 to like 1865. Yeah. And that really pissed me off. And I, and I, and the docent was really nice about it. I couldn't be nice about it. I stepped in. Because I was really angry. I was like, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. That means you need to give up everything before, you know, you can't claim, the, you know, the first Thanksgiving and the, the Mayflower Compact and all that other nonsense if you're not willing to claim this. It's just yeah. nonsense. Um, or Indian removal. I mean, the British were far, in, re, in reality was, they were willing to work with Native people as long as they accepted a certain amount of mother country authority and part of our reason for revolution right was england saying the mother country saying you know what y'all really need to keep the peace with these indians and american colonists are going we can shoot them and make them move out the way what are you telling us to do you know the whole different attitude um so somebody got to own this um, the British folks are mainly into owning the Caribbean story, hmm. but damn it, we were, we're part of that British, we're part of that British wealth too. You know, 
the, my my people, my ancestors, their bodies helped build the wealth in England too. Come on, somebody got somebody got to take responsibility for this and really look at it. But I, when I saw in England was people were trying to uh, trying to own the story and look at it anew, and that here we weren't really doing that as much. We're doing it in ways we're very cautious and respectful of people's issues with their own racism. You know, oh, I don't really want to hurt your feelings as, as a racist in America. So I'm going to use this cautious language. Whereas when I went over to the International Slavery Museum in Liverpool, it was straight up. Uh, Europeans exploited Africans. Yeah. Full stop. Thomas Thistlewood slaveholder Jamaica raped his women on his plantation and gave him syphilis and gonorrhea. Full stop. It was it was it was it was it was something. You know, hey, these are black Liverpoolians. Um we they were denied an education because of, you know, race riots. No no absolutely no sort of like, you know, American exceptionalism, you know, sort of like and then we became a free people because we we just caught the wind of righteousness. None of that. And that there was gonna be it was gonna be a good day coming, and we were just waiting for it. And no, <laughs> no, 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 none of this, none of this. Oh, in nineteen seventy something, Elder so and so got a got a uh, got a prayer from somebody saying black people actually can go to heaven. Get out of here. No, 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 no. They they were they were very upfront about it, and it made me trust them. Um, it made me feel as though that these were people I could have a dialogue with that wasn't based on anything more than truth. It was not guilt, not shame, not hurt, not pain, but truth and moving forward and doing the right thing. Do you feel that that was the broad consensus that you saw? Uh, yes. Yes. Um, I think they were really... Uh, even this pla- even this past trip I took, really dedicated to sort of saying, you know, we don't do that here. That's not what our that's not what our main goal is. Um, however, I was profiled and followed in a Marks and Spencer in uh, in um, Edinburgh. They still got work to do. Yeah, there's a little and 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 also what and also another store in London, and it was like. I, like guys, look, I'm from I'm from America. I know this routine, and so in both cases, I put down my cart, talked to the manager, and said, "I can't shop here. I will not shop where I'm not trusted." So that was that. So to the extent, to the extent that there is more of an honest awareness over there, what do you think? What do you think it's going to take for for America to to start moving in that direction? Um, the the word honesty keeps coming up, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, that's it. That's it. I mean, one of the things that got me about like uh, one of my visits to South Carolina was this gentleman who was German. Um, his wife and his brother, or her brother, was were visiting. How do you feel? He said. As African Americans dressing in these clothes, interpreting slavery. And I said, How do you feel being a German 
who lives with the legacy of the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. His response was quick as a flash. The Holocaust was a horrible thing and it never should have happened. And we will never let it happen again. There were some women in the room who were Southern, white, and they were really getting into this whole reenactment, not reenactment, but this whole like interpretation thing. Yeah. It kind of tickled them. And they were, you know, one of them was waxing poetic in the background by her mammy back in the good old days. And then this man asked me this uncomfortable question. And then all four women purse their lips and leave immediately. They did not want to say those words. Slavery was a horrible thing. We never should have done it. And we will never let slavery or its systemic consequences happen again. Hmm. They didn't want to say the damn words. To them, slavery was a family. They were really members of our family. We didn't see them as slaves. We were servants. That's some Yankee nonsense. Our servants were parts of the family if they followed the rules. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And what happened now if they didn't follow the rules? It's just a relocation. Exactly. What, you know, what, what's going on here? What's going on here? What do you mean the rules? And what, why are we not referencing all the other indignities of slavery and issues? Why? You know, but that caught me up. That really got me. It was like his guy was like, nope. I know, I know, I know my deal. My deal is I don't want this this evil repeated. What's your deal? So that was a meaningful conversation. That happened a lot, actually. Um, that happened quite a bit. People just kind of like having this interface. But that's what I wish for the South, and I wish for America as a whole. And I honestly, and I also that's another part of it. The South doesn't own American racism. No, 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 no. That's how come I feel the South can, can redeem itself because because there is a there is northern racism, there's western racism, there's east coast racism, there's southwest racism, it's American racism. Period. There's western racism and uh, anti-black racism. Let me make it, make it very clear: anti-black racism. Okay. And I want you to understand: it is un, it is. It is the duty of every person of every color to do their best, their level-headed best, to nip these things in the bud, to resist their own desire to hate, to prejudge, to be bigoted, to resist their own willingness to constantly put people in bubbles to not only give people a chance but understand that they will mess up they will fumble they will fall on the way to trying to be better and it is our job to pick them up and walk with them and not look down on them and kick them while they're down to me a, a, a white person who admits that they have racist tendencies and have issues with it was trying to work on it to me that's 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 not a that person is 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 gold to me. I don't like the word ally or shoot the term ally. Okay. Either either you are my family or you're not as a human being. That's all there is to it. 
Now, we can keep our own individualistic families, yes? The, you know, the tribe of being gay, the tribe of being Jewish, the tribe of being black, the tribe of being Southern. But we also have to keep our universal humanity as well. And it's my duty and my, and my, my job as a human being, made in the image of God, if I really do believe in that, to treat people as such. And if they fail to act in a godly manner, <laughs> to correct them as gently as possible. And if that doesn't work, I need to disengage with them and nonviolently resist the evil that they won't. That's how it works. No, there are no allies here, Jeremy. We are, we are, we are a human family. And we will either survive together or die together. I've learned that for, for this work. I, I can't, I, I got to tell you something that I don't often say. I don't think I would, I don't think that if my personal relationships, if, if you know, if my discourse and Congress in the gay community or Jewish community had not existed, I think I wouldn't, I think I'd be in my own black bubble and wouldn't leave it. I wouldn't trust white folks. I wouldn't talk to them. You know, I might be in the same boat as many other people from my wider black community, global black community. But I choose to have faith and hope. Not in, you know, in, first of all, my ability to save my own people on my own terms and have us save ourselves. And second of all, our ability to have discourse with our neighbors, our, our family, that may look different and achieve something. You know, even little steps. So I don't, I don't, yeah, I, I learned from this project and this book that um, fighting for humanity is worth it. That, you know, it is a glorious gift to be able to look somebody in the eye who doesn't look like you and see that uh, you are indeed um, cousins cut from the same cloth. And for myself, speaking as as a white person, I think there's there's a lot of. I mean, you're you're speaking of faith and hope. Uh, there's, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of fear, and not just the fears that that racism teaches to white folks, but the fear of of unsettling um, the racist structure and and framework that we've we've been brought up to to live in that. Uh, that orders orders America and overcoming that fear. I mean, to what, what you said to like the, the full humanity of others overcome that fear is, is, I mean, important, always certainly important in this moment, which brings me to, to a, a quote that I loved in the book. You say that uh, you say close to the end that the real history is not in the food. It's in the people kind of reminded of Upton Sinclair saying that I tried to, to get him in, right in the jungle. I tried to um, I tried to get him in the heart and I just got him in the stomach. What has been the how have you seen this this book embraced, interpreted, uh, responded to? Uh, so far, well we haven't really, August 1st is our thing um, release but so far, you know, Dr. Gates, Carla Hall, Hugh Atchison, the Lee brothers, 
Tony Tipton Martin, um, Kirkus review have all been very positive, very, very glowing. Hope that continues. Um, it's not a perfect book to me because, you know, it's never perfect. It's not like a baby, right? Because the baby is perfect. <laughs> you know, no one, no one ever says their baby isn't perfect. Yeah. And, 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 and it may well be true that they are perfect, but it may not be true. I, you know, if I could have written an 800 page book, it would have taken me another two years, but it would have told every single exhaustive story that I just told you and then some. There were a million stories like that. An incredibly rich journey, but I also had to balance out being an educator with being an entertainer with being a detective. Yeah. And that's not easy, and it wasn't easy, and it's, you know, I'm going to beat myself about this book to the day I die. Um, but at the same point in time, um, it's a, I wanted to be able to start conversations. Um, you know, People can rest easy knowing that white guilt is not one of my key ingredients, and neither is black shame. You know, we don't roll like that. Um, but I do want people to have a steel stomach when they get this book in their hands and understand that mm, you, you're going to need to to really toughen it up before you put before you get these. You know, you're going to think about some things long after you've read them. But um, just think about the ways in which you can use the contemporary world to make it better and improve upon the things you're reading in this book that are uncomfortable. Um, cause I think we can all, we can all do that. Um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about water is life. Thinking about the, you know, the move, yeah, the movement against, um, the pipeline and that native issues that the, that the violation of native women and the, the murder of native people by law enforcement is so underreported, under discussed and the violation of environments um, that were originally indigenous environments and still are in many cases, um, you know, cannot, cannot be allowed to thrive, you know, it, 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 you, you know, so I asked myself, well, what can I do more than just retweet and like things on Facebook? What can I do? How can I work with native chefs and say, you know what, the bonds that we created in the you know, 15th, 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries and 19th centuries are still here. Let us fight back with food. Let's resist with food. Let's unify with food. Let's teach both of our children their history. They come from proud people. People that work together to actually make America live up to its promise of freedom. That should not be scary for white folks to hear. You, you hear me? Yeah. That should just be a thing. You know, when I read about barbecue for the Guardian, I scared the shit out of people. Because I was like saying, you know, yeah, barbecue belongs on all these summer holidays as you talk about freedom and heroism and bravery. And, you know, because barbecue was invented by heroic, brave people who are resisting slavery. The ultimate challenge to American democracy and the concept that all men are created equal. People lost their minds. Because they, they equated barbecue with roasting meat, which is not the same. And second of all, they, 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 they ignored the fact that these Caribbean folks, these maroon folks that jerk the jerk tradition in Jamaica and other places, 
comes out of resistance. Every single, get this, Nat Turner's Revolt, Barbecue of a Pig. Hmm. Gabriel Prosser, Barbecue. In Virginia, 1800. Richmond. The Haitian Rebellion begins with a barbecue. Yeah. Of a black pig. Sacrifice of a black pig to Ezeli Danto. You know, on the, um, not the Rada, but the Petwo side of Vodun, which is, which is the hot and aggressive and resistant side of Vodun. So apparently for our ancestors, barbecue was meat in time. It was time to discuss how are we going to end this? How are we going to get to the next level? You know, it wasn't just this quaint sort of like, you know, everybody sit down to the southern table and eat the food together. No, it, it, was, it was about resistance. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah. But that scared people because it, I'm telling them, no, this isn't just about, you know, good old boys having a good old time. This is about finding a way out of hell. And uh, making it taste good on the way. And if you're in hell, you might as well barbecue. Speaking of uh, getting out of hell, and speaking specifically of your mention of uh, Vodun in in the Haitian Revolution, how has this food how has this food kept religion alive? Um, the most important way is that if your ancestors eat it, it automatically becomes divine. Mm. because in our tradition you know the memory of the ancestors and ancestry ancestor reverence transcends religious boundaries you know there's no there's nowhere in west central africa you know that you know that phrase that applies to haiti applies to everywhere else right in the black world they they say that haiti is 80% catholic 20% Protestant and 100% Vodun. Same thing goes for any other black country. Whatever the, whatever the stats are, it's 100% traditional. Same thing with African Americans. You know, we, we, we had all this stuff, all this stuff went underground for so long, we forgot the meaning. We forgot the why, but it's still there. It manifests itself. Okay, so when you see, I'm gonna take it away from food for a second because I got, I have to, to kind of like illuminate some things. When you see Nicki Minaj run around in leopard print and evoke the image of the cat, it's the leopard society in West Africa, in Central Africa, that is the guardian of justice. And the and the clapback, right? Don't make them mad, because they'll come, they come shake you up and tell you. Don't mess with us. Don't don't mess with society. So we have this whole thing about cats, right? In black language. We call people cat. Let's look at that cat, man. We have this thing about that that lion, that leopard. We got a cut we got a comic thing, the Black Panther coming out, right? All the you know, why do we use this language of of aggressive cats? That's what our ancestors used to to sort of administer justice. You know, um, food is also something that we kind of push into the ground. In Santeria, in um, Candomblé, in Vodun, and other traditions, Shango Baptist, 
The altar sparkles with cakes, which are very European. But the minute you dedicate a red and white cake to Shango, it becomes another another artifact completely. You know, foods that were remembered, yam prepared a certain way, black eyed peas prepared a certain way, on the altar are prepared simply according to recipes that have been passed down. Recipes that were not were not composed for mortals, but for the transcendent ancestors who became Orisha. Okay? Or Abosum. Or Vodou. Or To. And then there's us. With our plates of food for the dead left on grave sites. And eating, you know, having picnics once upon a time, Memorial Day, in the cemetery. Making foods on family occasions that recall um, beloved ancestors. You know, all of that. All of that. And then, of course, we have, you know, our, our so-called superstitions, which are actually folk beliefs. You know, when do you eat collard greens and, and black-eyed peas? What does all that mean? Why did why did people plant sesame seed, sesame plants on the outside of outskirts of the garden? You know all that stuff. You know why did they hang certain things up, strips of cloth, shells, feathers? You know why is food just an important part of our reunions, our weddings, our life cycle events, our funerals? How, how does how does food take us to the crossroads and back? Hmm. All of that. All of that. Then, of course, we have had this dialogue with the Caribbean and Latin America. And that has enriched our story here. And of course, we have New Orleans. We have the Gullah community, where a lot of these African food traditions survived as is. You know? So, you know, hey. Um, I think I talk about this in the book, how you know I, went, I was lucky to go down to Mary Laveau's grave. And now you cannot go anymore unless you're with a tour. Um, you can't just walk up in the St. Louis Cemetery. Um, but when I went there, it was remarkable. People left little bowls of gumbo. They left cigars. They left flowers. They left perfume. They left shells. They left crosses. You know, I chose not to make the X mark. Some people call it defacing. I, I think people need to be very careful about that. Um, yes, I understand what they mean. Because, yes, you know, after a while, when enough people rub on a statue or a grave site, it begins to crumble. It begins to, you know, you know. But I think for some people that it actually is not a, not, it's not a trendy thing to do. That X mark, which you can't make anymore, by the way. It's illegal. It used to be a you know, semi-protective religious act. Um, I chose not to do it because it's not my faith tradition and also because I felt I listened to the woman I met in the market and said it's, not a, it's like signing a contract and I chose to leave a rock in the Jewish tradition. And but I, I, this woman was remarkable. You know, She was even brought to life by Angela Bassett. Who doesn't want Angela Bassett playing them 200 years as they die? Come on. You got mud in the American Horror Story uh, season? Yes, honey. I want I want Angela Bassett to play me. But that's another story for another time. Um, 
Can I just yeah, Michael? Can I just ask? So, um, for for our listeners who may not know her, can you talk about who this this powerful woman, um, Rhea Laveau, was? Yeah, she was. She lived in the late eighteenth and early nineteenth century, and she was called a voodoo queen. She was wasn't really a voodoo queen. She was um, a leader, a priestess, a very specific type of New Orleans style voodoo. Um, that was kissing cousin to Haitian voodoo. There were elements there, but um, she is the she is the product of these melding of cultures, European, African, and Native. That was early New Orleans, and she was an amazing cook. She was a faithful Catholic. People need to understand, like I said before, you know. Eighty percent this, hundred percent Vodun, right? You you can still you in our tradition, there's no such thing as you only have to be one thing. You know, <laughs> you be yeah, you know, you can carry as many keys as it takes to get into heaven. Um, and then there's this other element. She has this daughter. Her daughter's grave is there and equally as revered. She takes up her her legacy. Um, there are made there are all these sort of urban legends and stories about her. Um, we don't we don't, we have one picture that people think is her but may not be her. Um, she was very mixed, but very proud of those African roots. Um, she conducted ceremonies, um, supposedly on the banks of Lake Pontchartrain, and she um, kept the religion and the culture going. And at least once or twice kept people from being hung through um, supernatural means, they say. But um, she's a legend, like Congo Square, like the other places in New Orleans. But you don't get other places in America because New Orleans was essentially the northernmost point of the Caribbean, the westernmost point of Africa, the southernmost point of Canada, and in the most southwestern corner of France. All at once. Um, and, and also speaking of, of intersections that you're talking about in New Orleans, um, can you talk about a little bit about how your, your Jewishness intersects with your exploration of, of this history? Sure. Well, you know, it's very clear to me that Judaism, you know, there's Judaism and there's Jewishness. There's the, Jew, the Jewish people. And then there's their religious civilization, which is called Judaism. You know. Judaism is not a religion. Judaism is a religious civilization of the Jewish people. And the Jewish people are a conglomerate that is poorly understood by the world. People think that they can validate and and authenticate the Jews. They'll they'll say things like Hebrew or Israelite sometimes in the black community. Um, Ain't no difference to me. A yid is a yid. No matter where he or she, yidna, <laughs> where she comes from. Some people don't like that word. I don't care. I think it's like soul. I think it's a, it's a word that comes from the people. Um, so therefore it matters. Um, but for me, learning a, about Judaism, not from an insider, but an outsider perspective, Having later finding I have Jewish ancestry, learning about those stories 
becoming Jewish and learning about Judaism from multiple perspectives. Orthodox reform, reconstructist renewal. You know, secular. Meant learning about concepts that were later informed my African American journey. You know, for example, this idea of food at the Pesach table, the Passover table, being didactic and educational. Text on the table. Yep. So, you know, the, 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 the Seder plate, the story, you know, being told every year, the foods that reflect the family's heritage, learning about women in Schreisenstadt during World War II who um, were resisting Hitler by remembering their days of freedom and their heritage. All of that stuff, man. And then, of course, it was the social justice aspect. Honestly, when I hear people, I got to say this, when I hear people talk about mock social justice as a concept, I hear anti-Semitism. They know where the hell it comes from. Yeah. They They know it comes from Bella Abzug and Abraham Joshua Heschel. They know it comes from uh, so many people who fought for progressive causes and gay rights. It's Harvey Milk. It's Betty Friedan, even though she's a very polarizing figure in the feminist movement. You know, it's Ms. Magazine. Um, Letty Cotton Pogrebin. These are all Jews. Jews that mostly came from Eastern European Bundist folk, right? You know, Bernie, you know, I don't know, Bernie is polarizing himself. But, you know, the context of Bernie is that he also has the same kind of heritage. Bundist, Eastern European, socialist. It's a dirty word. I don't care. If, if socialism means that you'd have to work eight hours a day instead of working 18 and dying in a, a triangle waste factory, I'd rather be a socialist. You know, I don't have any particular political leaning, but I think that that's, I think that's, hey, that's not a dirty word to me. But the bottom line is that's who I learned from, man. I learned from progressive Jews who were the product of these, these, these kind of movements. And that is the, that is the American Jewish way. We're, we're, we're dedicated to this sort of like bettering tikkun alam through social justice. So when I hear people like knock the, the social justice warrior or social justice, I hear anti-Semitism. This is my little 10 cents. But having said that, that's what got me into this idea of culinary justice. No one said it. I just said, well, why shouldn't there not be a, a culinary justice the way to food justice? And one time I was at a program in, in you know, at Swarthmore in Philadelphia. And an African-American woman who worked in that community and worked in Philadelphia said to me, you know, I feel you on this culinary justice thing, but I think it's kind of elitist. Because hmm. people don't have food justice. And I looked at her and I said, my dear sister, if all you have is rice and beans, and somebody comes along and jacks that rice and beans and turns the price up and uses your misery to upsell it. And you have nothing to say about it and you have nothing to show for it. You do need some culinary justice. It's not just about food access anymore. It's about controlling the source code, controlling the narrative, having some power over your own ability to 
um, to have your how you survive your oppression be a form of cultural capital. Which I've said before, it's the greatest cultural capital we have is how we survive our oppression. So I, I, I convinced her in, in a few sentences that, no, we needed culinary justice as well. But that concept is to me is very um, rooted in my Jewish experience. You know, I, you know, I, I'm sitting around studying Martin Buber and I'm sitting around studying all these other people. And um, we're looking at those Americans that I called out by name earlier and what Jewishness meant to them. And then going back into the religion itself, you know, in Devarim 32.7, consider the generations of the past and remember the days of old. That's a commandment. That's a mitzvah. You know, uh, Judaism mitzvah doesn't mean good deed. It means commandment. Thou shalt do. Okay. And so for me, that all became one fell swoop. And I, you know, learned about Jews in the South from, you know, through Marcy Cohen Ferris and other and other writers. I learned about how that food sh- was was shaped by contact with black folks. You know, um, black eyed peas and kishka and matzo ball gumbo are real, and they're real because Jews who came to the South or through the South were still new to being American, and it was black folks who helped Americanize them through our foodways. Um, there are black Jews around the world, the Jews of color around the world, and we have a lot to tell the world about intersection of identity and the politics of just play, being plain human. Um, so I write about in the book. Um, initially, when I was trying to sell this book um, for proposal to uh, paper, I had it. You know, one very well known. Um, outlet in New York, the editor um, who's going to make all the final decisions got really nervous about me. And she said that, quite frankly, that um, uh, she said, uh, she, no, she said, she did absolutely point blank. She said, with a nervous laughter, America's not ready for you. And that hurt because I'm thinking to myself, you, she, and she was Jewish too. Um, it hurt because I was thinking to myself, look, I'm already here. I'm already branded this kosher soul thing. This is my heritage. This is, this is, you are, you're part of the story because I let you, I let you be a part of the story. You're not telling me I told you. Um, your, my America for your America existed. You're telling me that America is not ready for me. You know, I will like America is the only place where I'm possible. America is the only place where I'm possible. And despite all of its faults, I express an unending gratitude for that. And so I set out, I think, in many ways to prove voices like that wrong that say that I have to compartmentalize my Jewish identity into some corner when actually it sits at the center and not the periphery of my life. And seen through that lens, your your book is almost a Haggadah of sorts. Oh, that's a compliment, man. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you're bringing together it's the food and the soul and the the sovereignty of, of justice that you're talking about. You talked earlier about 
about this concept of recipes, both like unwritten, written, the recipes for for the divine people, for the ancestors, for now, for the future. Um, so let me ask you about the recipes in your book. Like some of these look like they could be translated over to the kitchen. Some of them look like they're they're meant more almost as a form of of, of memory themselves, as like almost a form of um, yes, a poetic dimension of the book. So can you tell us what what uh, what role do the recipes included in the book provide? They're sort of like a uh, icing on the cake, really. Um, they're not some of you know it was hard because when I'm putting them in the book. First of all, I didn't want to really want to have to do it, but a lot of people told me I had to do it. And th- those were my readers, you know. They wanted that. Yeah. I think that they really wanted me to, to like, give up some secrets. And honestly, that's not what these recipes do. If you're not familiar with my work, then this is all new stuff to you. But I did take about half of them from my blog. Um, eventually, I will do a cookbook. But when I do it, it's not going to be um, – it's going to be what a real cookbook should be. It'll be refined. It'll be, you know, process-oriented, formulaic. Mm-hmm. These recipes, I had a hard time with the, with the copy editor because he's thinking I should be writing cookbook recipes. Hmm. These are grandma recipes, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> they're, not, they're not really meant to be, like, perfect and, and spelled out. Um, some of them are really good, but you got to know how you got to know how to cook to get them done. Yeah, to execute them. A little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But also, you know, how to play with ingredients and how to build to your own taste. That's that's also important. But I wanted people to have my mother's apple crust recipe because my, I love my mother dearly, a blessed memory. Then I wanted people to have our macaroni and cheese and our um, our um, black eyed peas and. Potato salad. You know, somebody put a picture of potato salad today on social media. Made me cry. Uh, potato salad shouldn't have a shouldn't have a. It has its own like C. Oh my god, eggs and bits of potato floating in some kind of murky mustard colored water. Oh my god. I mean, no child, you need a recipe for that. You need a <laughs> new spell because it was the grossest looking thing I ever saw in my life. And they call that potato salad. Lord have mercy. I was mad looking at that picture. I just, I just was revolting. So we need to learn those old ways. So people don't do no mess like that. Hmm. That can get you hurt. <laughs> Come to some cookout with some potatoes that are looking like potato soup that been let out in the sun for five days. No, sir. Mm-mm. I'm trying to save lives, Jeremy. <laughs> Make better potato salad save a life. Not ruin them further. No, amen. Praise God. So, so along with saving folks from from misguided potato salad, and maybe at one point or at some point soon writing a cookbook, um, I'm going to ask you our our traditional last question on the New Books Network. Uh, what are you working on now? What what else is next? What's coming up? <laughs> oh man, like book isn't like, even out you know, yet. That's like that's like when the uh, the husband cuddles up to the wife and says, "Hey." The baby in the bathroom is beautiful. <laughs> How about another one? And she goes, get the hell out of my bed. <laughs> you know, go somewhere else for the next two years. Maybe we'll talk. Um, that's how I feel. But 
Um, I'm actually working on another project um, that's going to our University of Carolina Press. It actually is a cookbook on rice, and it's part of the Savor the South series. Okay. Which is kind of fun to do. It's a, it's a small cookbook. It's not a big deal. It's a big deal, but it's not a, it's not a big, you know, brawny cookbook. It, you know, these are meant to be a, like a little encyclopedic series of, you know, southern-based recipes. So I'm very thankful for that. Um, but I would like to do an arc, an arc of um, food-driven memoirs. One is, this one is mainly African-American, but it introduces a lot of those themes about my life. The next one I would like to be, you know, really focusing on my Jewish identity and food and being of color. And the third one is about my gay identity and food. Um, I want people to understand that even, you know, people think sexuality is just one thing. It's not orientation. It isn't all sexual. <laughs> it isn't all orientation. Um, and so I wanted to write about being a bearish man, being, you know, um, a larger hirsute man and food. Uh, the fact that, you know, Craig Claiborne and James Beard and Bill O'Neill, all gay men. All gay men who are very important history of American food and Southern food. And yet, we're never really quite were able to get all the parts themselves out there, you know, to tell the truth about themselves. And yet, we're, you know, everybody knew it was gay, fundamental. And then the other part of it is just, you know, what being gay means in terms of black identity and the kitchen and food and power. Um, so all of those things put together, you know, weight and weight issues in the gay community. You know, how it's not cool to be big. Um, and yet, you know, other parts of the gay community where being being big and being white is no problem, but being big and being black is, is still a problem. So all the all stuff going down, I just want to use food as a vehicle to talk about things that, that I think people should know about, should be addressed. You know, um, so yeah, I'll be bringing a rainbow cake to a <laughs> a kitchen near you, or you know, a pile of kasha varnishes a kitchen near you, you know, with a little bit of soul um, seasoning on top of it. Yeah, yeah, man, it's complicated stuff. Somebody has to do it. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'll be excited to have you back on the show then once those come out. Oh yes, yes, yes. That's always a good thing. And in the meantime, I'll be. Uh... I'll look for uh, a few more rice recipes from you. And uh, Yes, yes, yes. Awesome. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you very much. I really appreciate this. And um, I encourage people to um, buy the cooking gene, prove from HarperCollins, from Amazon, from Indie Books, from Pals, from Barnes & wherever you want to buy your book. Order for your local bookstore if you're you know, hot on to that. Um, go Amazon if you're not, whatever case may be. But the reason why I want people to buy this book is not just to support me and my work, which is, you know, I can't really write those recipes until I'm in a more stable, um, stable place all around. But um, I also want people to understand that when we support books that certain gatekeepers say America's not ready for, yeah, we make a better America. 
Because then we say, oh, no, 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 that already is America. That is the real American story. And we need to let people know that those American stories exist. So I thank you. Yeah, I, I, I agree with all of that and would definitely encourage all of our listeners to pick it up. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you.